A good afternoon, we're in John chapter 2, just two verses, 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Sorry, only three verses, not two. May the God bless the reading of his holy and errant words. How much God may choose to do with just three verses. I pray that God would do a mighty work in your heart through three verses. Number one, short. See right away, this is short, three verses. It looks like a nothing passage in between two famous stories. Last week we saw Jesus cleansing the temple. We know that story. And in chapter 3, we know very well the story of Nicodemus. Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. We're coming to one of the most famous chapters, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. So it looks like we have a bit of transition. Well, it is a transition passage and an important one. If nothing else, it's a good reminder we shouldn't ignore anything in our Bibles because all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. In every verse, God has something for us. And so he does with three verses here. Secondly, it's surprising because of the word believed in verse 23. Many believed in his name. John's Gospel is so important, isn't it? The theme of believing. John 1 verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. We've referenced several times John's purpose for writing, John 20 verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The book is to cause us to believe. These things were written so you would believe. We come to verse 23 and we say, yes, it is happening. And then verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. It's more surprising than that, even in the Greek. If you want to be overly literal, the sense is they believed in his name and Jesus did not believe them. They believe in his name, but Jesus does not believe in them. That they really believe. Which is why the passage is not only surprising, but startling and shocking and scary. We tend to think that there's only two categories when we come to relating to Jesus. Belief and unbelief. Good people, bad people. Up until this point, that's what we have seen. John 2, verse 11, this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Then last week, at verse, we saw in verse 18, after the cleansing of the temple, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the temple authorities said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The disciples believed. 
But the Jewish leaders, the, the ones who were not on Team Jesus, if you like, was it, who are you to clear the temple like this? Give us a sign. So we have belief, the disciples, unbelief, the Jewish leaders. And in verse 22 of John 2, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So it seems, up until this point, we have two options. You can be on the side of the disciples who believe in Jesus. Or you can be on the side of the Jewish establishment who rejected him. And when we think about these two choices, we feel pretty good. We are Jesus people. We go to church. We're not anti-Jesus. But Jesus introduces us to a third option. That there is a believing and then there is a believing that does not save. You can say, well, that doesn't sound theologically correct. But is that not what we see in verse 23? They believe. And in verse 24, Jesus does not believe in their belief. So it's startling and scary, the third option, the so-called belief that Jesus says he does not believe. Which means, and this is why I say it's startling, surprising and scary, it's possible that you are watching this and saying to yourself, I believe in Jesus, but Jesus is saying, I do not buy it. Well, what was the problem? We see hints of the problem in the second half of verse 23. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. There is no problem with the signs. John is going to make a point to say this is the sign and the next sign and the next sign and the wedding at Cana in Galilee was the first sign. And John is only giving us a select few. There are many signs that took place and many people were seeing Jesus do miracles. And they said, I want to be a part of that. Their faith, so called, was not rooted in a firm conviction in the gospel. It was connected to the miraculous only. It is not a problem that the miraculous would play a role in confirming their faith or pointing to Jesus. That's what signs were meant to do, to point to Jesus, to tell people he is unique. They were signs demonstrating his identity, his claims, they were authenticating his ministry. But they were often misunderstood. They were misunderstood as being the point when they are only the pointers. We see this throughout the Gospels. People want to be near Jesus because he does call things. Who wouldn't want to be near Jesus? He was doing miracles. Do you not think if somebody were today doing the things Jesus did, that word wouldn't get around? Did you not see the thing that he did with the tables? He turned water into wine. Many believed in his name, but it was only an attraction to power, an attraction to the sensational, a draw towards fame rather than a belief in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. One commentator said Jesus looked for conversion, not enthusiasm about the spectacular. That's why many people believe in Jesus. 
who isn't enthusiastic about the spectacular? What accounts for your interest in Jesus? Many people are interested in Jesus because of what they get from Jesus. There are many popular preachers who preach a message which says Jesus has power for you. Jesus can arrange things for you. Jesus believes in you. Believe in Jesus, believe in yourself. Look at the amazing things that will happen. He does have power, brothers and sisters, my dear friend. He can do amazing things. He does do amazing things. But time and time again, we see people fascinated with the pointers and they miss the point. Throughout the Gospels, when people are only fixated on the miracles, Jesus often said, I'm not going to do miracles anymore here. They didn't question the authenticity of the miracles, but the miracles didn't make them genuine believers. Sometimes we say, if only I could see a miracle, I'd be a believer too. Really? How many people saw out-and-out miracles? And how many people's, people really believed Jesus in the Gospel? Not many. John 7 verse 3, his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Is that not interesting? Verse 3, his earthly brothers, his half-brothers, Mary's children, came to him and said, do this in public, show yourself to the world. Now we would think that's a sign that his brothers believed in him. But verse 5 tells us the brothers did not believe in him. It wasn't a sign of their faith, but their lack of faith. They believed in the miracles, but they didn't understand who Jesus was. They fixated on the pointers and missed the point. There's a danger of being a sign seeker. Matthew 24, verse 24. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as even to lead astray if possible the elect. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. There are people who love the signs more than the truth and they will be deceived. You will be led astray if you love the signs rather than the truth. These three verses in John 2 set the stage for Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Verse 25, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. John 3 verse 1, now there was a man, a Pharisee's name, Nicodemus. It couldn't be more obvious to introduce us to Nicodemus, someone who was drawn to the signs, someone who recognised the authority but didn't yet understand who Jesus was, wasn't yet born again. Verse 2 of John 3, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus was recognised by Nicodemus as a teacher. Jesus, the one who did miracles. Jesus said, I see your heart and you need a new one. You're drawn to the signs. Nicodemus was a ruler in Israel. He was a teacher in Israel. He could see Jesus did miracles in Israel. He recognised Jesus as a man sent from God. But for all of that, Nicodemus was not born again. 
He believed without believing. That's what verse 23 is talking about. Believed in his name. Are you the person that believes, but you have the belief that Jesus doesn't believe in? Searching. The passage is surprising. It's short. It's surprising. It's startling. It's searching. Verse 23 looks like good news. They believe, but it isn't. Why not? Because Jesus could see what was going on in their hearts. And there's one thing that God knows for certain is what is going on inside of you and me. 1 Samuel 16, man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you deserve my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high. I cannot attain it. Do you know that God sees things about you that you don't see? Things about me, a lot of us would be happier in life and be holier in life if we understood that one crucial bit of theology, that God knows more than you. He knows you and me better than we know ourselves. Other people maybe may not see, but God sees. There are all kinds of things hidden from us. We don't always know motivations. We don't all want to know what is going on in the heart. We don't know if somebody says sorry that they mean it. There's all sorts of things hidden from you and from me, but they're not hidden from God. And they were not hidden from Jesus. Go back to verse 24. Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew them. He knew them better than they knew themselves. We think we know ourselves. Some of us are very reflective, some less so. We all think we know ourselves. We kind of understand what makes us tick. We understand what makes us happy, what makes us sad when we are hungry. When we are hurt, how we are feeling, what we do where we want to go. One of the revolutionary things about the Bible is that the Bible says you don't understand yourself very well. Do you believe it is possible for someone to know you better than you know you? Some of you have been married a long time. Your spouse knows you better than you do. It's amazing they're still with you, but they still know you better than you know yourself. They know when you're happy, when you're sad. Some of you have friends that know you. Do you believe it is possible for someone to know you better than you know yourself? There are things about ourselves we may not see that are obvious to other people. Jesus sees and he knows. We need to be honest with him. Witness is a big theme in John's Gospel. John the Baptist came to be a witness. We are to bear witness. But here is one witness Jesus does not need. Verse 25, and needed no one to bear witness about man. He doesn't need your help to figure you out. He understands your motivation. He knows your heart. And if you come to church every Sunday for other reasons than the gospel, Jesus knows. If you're here for the show, Jesus knows. If your belief, your profession of faith is a vague 
pro-Jesus sentiment and nothing more. He knows. He knew what was in man. That's the banner flying over the theme of the next chapters. Jesus knew what was in people. He knew Nicodemus. He knew the Samaritan woman. He knew how many husbands she'd had. When we get to the end of chapter 4, we come to the Gentile official. And Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He knows what's going on. Chapter 5, the man at the pool in Bethesda. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been there a long time. Jesus knows. He knows you better than you know yourself. Which is why this passage, these three verses, is short. It's startling. It's surprising, it's searching, it's scary. You may fool your friends, you may fool your family, you may fool your pastor, but you cannot fool the Word who was with God and the Word was God. When you come to a tree, all you can see is the trunk and the leaves and the branches, and it may look strong, you can't see the roots. You see the tree, you see the bark, but you see the fruit and the fruit is a reflection of the root and it's possible to fake fruit because you can't see the roots and the fruit may fool us but the roots do not fool Jesus. I said at the beginning that this passage was short, it's also surprising, it is startling and searching and there's one more S, it is saving. I hope this passage will prove for someone today, listening online, saving. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a good prayer to pray. This isn't about making us unsure of our salvation. No. But maybe making someone who's not really saved to be urgent about their salvation. If no one ever leaves church wondering if they're saved, then we can always only assume that everyone who goes to church is always and forever saved. Well, if you're saved, you are forever saved, but some people are not yet saved. So this is a good prayer. Search me, O God. Do I believe in Jesus, but Jesus does not yet believe in me? I want to be a believer in Jesus. May it be never said that anyone at Lake Road Chapel could stand before God and said, nobody ever told me. God knows, he knows who you are. He knows your heart. You can't hide from him. Let me ask another question. Do you believe that Jesus is mighty to save? Not only the prodigal, but the religious, the churchgoer, the hard-hearted cultural religious man who has never understood themselves as Jesus understands them. Can Jesus save you? Yes. Don't content yourself with being just vaguely pro-Jesus. That's a belief that Jesus does not believe in. The one who sees and knows, the one who doesn't need the approval of man or anyone to bear witness about man. This one searches hearts, but he is Lord, Saviour, and he will forgive and he will receive when we truly repent and believe. May that be your portion for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.